Well, Happy New Year uh, from all of us here at EdStetzerLive.com. Maybe you're listening later because increasingly some of you will listen by podcast. Maybe it's not New Year's Day, but still, it's a new year. So Happy New Year to you from our whole team, from Karen Handren, our producer, from Courtney Young, our engineer, and Eric Tidwell, and others on our team who are manning the phones. We wish you a Happy New Year. Uh, and it is New Year's Day when this is airing, so we're actually with our families and uh, and taking a day off. But the great thing is we have a fascinating conversation with uh, Larry Eskridge and Andrew McDonald. And I'll, of course, introduce them more formally in the recording in just a moment. But I have the privilege of uh, working regularly with Andrew. And uh, Larry's a former colleague at Wheaton College as well and done a huge research project on the Jesus People Movement. I want to direct you to JesusPeopleMovement.com. And you'll be able to follow along the oral history. Andrew did most of that. Larry Eskridge, well, this will all be linked there, but he wrote God's Forever Family. And I want to encourage you to take a look at both of those. But we're going to just jump into our conversation now with them. It's a pre-recorded show, and we'll continue to bring live shows back to next week. And hope you're enjoying uh, New Year's as we are as well. Welcome to Ed Stetzer Live, and uh, I'm Ed Stetzer coming to you this and every Saturday at this time. We are actually um, a bit misnamed today because we're not Ed Stetzer Live, though we're live, but we are actually pre-recording this conversation, and uh, we're here at the Biola University. We're at Biola University where we're having a conference, and so we're pre-recording at this conference, and uh, we're partnering with the uh, Wheaton, I was going to be Wheaton College Billy Graham Center is partnering. I lead, I lead the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center is partnering with Biola University's Holy Spirit Center. Andrew, you're going to admit in just a second, he's my, one of my guests. Andrew, what's the full name of the center? It is the Center for the Ministry and Work of the Holy Spirit Today. Today. All right. I like that. And so, and I have uh, two guests today on the program to talk about a very, I think, inter- I think it should be of interest to all of us. So it's not just kind of a, a niche conversation. Not that I'm opposed to an itch conversation, but we're going to talk about the Jesus People Movement. So uh, in the show notes, you'll actually see if you go to edstetzerlive.com, you can see a link to jesuspeoplemovement.com, which is an oral history that uh, one of our guests today compiled, another guest today was involved in. And we're going to talk about this, um, well, this fascinating phenomenon called the Jesus People Movement. My two guests are Larry Eskridge. Is uh, He was actually part of the Jesus People in the Chicago suburbs in the 70s. But he wrote a, a book that has been widely well-received. It's called God's Forever Family, the Jesus People Movement in America. It's published by Oxford University Press, named Christianity Today's Book of the Year, Religion News Writers 2014 Nonfiction Book of the Year. It's quite. It was quite the uh, quite the splash when it came out. He's got a PhD from the University of Sterling uh, and was on the staff at Wheaton College of the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals uh, for over 25 years. Um, he's co-editor of other books like More Money, More Ministry, Evangelicals of Money in Recent North American History by Erdman's. Lots of articles in different publications as well. And we had the privilege of getting to know each other when he lived in Wheaton. But you are no longer in Wheaton. Where have you gone no, to? I have uh, wandered off to the hills of western North Carolina. I'm hiding in a wooded holler these days <laughs> nice. and enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us would like to go hide in a wooded holler nowadays. But that's a, another story for yes. another day. Uh, Andrew McDonald is also my guest. He's associate director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Research Institute. Finishes up his doctorate in historical theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and a frequent co-author with Ed Stetzer. I guess we're working on an article, a cover story for the National Association of Evangelicals. Is it a cover story? Yeah, okay. that's if a cover not, story. If it's not, just tell them. Spring 2021. <laughs> spring 2021 spring on 2022. evangelical identity. Yes. And so this is of interest to all of us. And so, Andrew, I want to start with you because um, I pulled you into this project. 
and you're not old enough to remember the Jesus people stuff. Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. He's just a young whippersnapper, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you lived it. I was a decade after it. Um, Andrew, as you started to do the research, I mean, what was the beginning interest? I mean, other than Ed Stetzer assigned you to this project. And then what did you learn as you kind of went through? Well, the way that I got, I remember getting introduced to the project was you blaring Larry Norman from your office as you invited me in to say, I have a project for you. Is so, that really? I don't remember that. Was I was like, why should the devil have all good music? Yes. No, unidentified flying object. That, He's an unidentified flying object. You, oh, had a, you had a whole Spotify playlist ready to I go. I do. Don't judge me. Don't <laughs> so, judge me. So that uh, Nancy Honeytree, yeah. Second Chapter of Acts, yes. Love oh, Song. Oh, I love Second Chapter of Acts. Actually, we're at this Ablaze conference right now and recording this. So we're recording this on a Saturday morning. Last night, we had a reunion of the Jesus People music music folks. Did you know, have you heard of Second Chapter Acts, Love Song, Salt Company? Who else Who else was here? Uh, Nancy Honeytree. Nancy Honeytree, yeah. And, yeah, and some of the members of- Melody Green. Melody Green was yeah. here mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I mean, there was a whole host of people. John Fisher was here. Yeah, yeah. He, he mm-hmm. gave a workshop yeah. as well. And so have you heard of some of those people before last night? Well, I mean, before we started this project. I knew Larry Norman, yeah. um, and that was probably Costa Mesa. Everybody knows Chuck Coast, Smith, Chuck Costa Smith, Mesa, Mesa, Maranatha, Chuck yeah. Fromm, and stuff yeah. like that. But yeah, everybody uh, knows Chuck Fromm. Not true, but anyway, everyone. <laughs> anybody, <laughs> anybody, anybody who has a PhD in evangelical history <laughs> yeah, yeah. knows who Chuck yeah, Fromm. Is. That's yeah, fair. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so so but then you got to enjoy. And last night we saw, and I videoed it. Hear the bells ringing, <laughs> Easter song. I'm going to sing the whole time. Larry's like, please stop. <laughs> um, so here's a fun fact. My sister, who died of an aggressive form of cancer uh, in her early 20s, she wanted to be a Christian singer. And one of the few mm. recordings we have of her is of her singing Mansion Builder by Second yeah. Chad Rax. Mm. And so mm. uh, I'm going to send that to my dad and to my mom today, uh, the video I took of it. But anyway, mm. so you start down this road. Yep. Um, your Even your PhD is focused 100 years earlier. Yeah, 19th uh, century. 19th century. Um, and so give us, I mean, just... What did you see as an outside observer historian in this movement? Well, one of the things that was fascinating right off the right off the bat was how much the kind of the cultural chaos of the 1960s played into the Jesus movement. That there was this revival that broke out at a time when I mean, we think about today how much polarization there's going on, how much there's animosity and and uh, political conflict, and even in, international wars and such. But I mean, that was that's nothing compared to the 1960s where you had assassinations and campus uh, riots where people were literally being shot um, and. And so a lot of the people that we were interviewing and talking to about their story began with, I just got back from Vietnam. Uh, Crazy. My, my, my brother or, or, or father had, had uh, gotten into drugs or, or something like that. And, and so their stories came out of this kind of cultural chaos, but slash brokenness. And so really, again and again, one of the videos that we, we showed this week, uh, or in fact, all the videos we showed this week started with the same theme of in the midst of this kind of difficult season and culture where people were looking for answers, looking for solutions, and they had been turned away by drugs. They had turned away by the kind of the free sex of, I mean, think about Summer of Love, 67. This happens right after that. 68, 69 is where the first etchings of the Jesus movement start to come forward. It doesn't fully flower until 71, 72. And so you're really coming out of all these assassinations. You start to bring out um, this kind of revival, these people looking and finding an answer in Jesus and in the church. One way, they hold their finger up one way. You got to see this little number one sign. Okay, Larry, Larry, we got to bring you in because you have uh, written really, I mean, so so I'm friends with... uh, uh, Brian Broderson. He's yeah. Chuck Smith's successor at Calvary Chapel. Right. You know the you know the church. You know the pastor, mm-hmm. and uh, 
he has lots of opinions on people who've written on the Jesus People movement. I can imagine. And yeah, and because you know, because I mean, he lived it, yeah. and uh, and he so and most of them were negative opinions, except he really loved your book. He said uh, he said Larry understood it. Larry got it right. So take us first though. Because you're a participant observer, right? This is the yeah. 70s. Tell mm -hmm. us about your how this begins to impact you. For me, it started um, when I was in high school. I had a, a social studies teacher, and this is up in the far northern suburbs of Chicago, um, who had come out to Southern California in the summer of 71. Oh, nice. And yeah. he uh, full, ran. Full war then. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. So he checked out, um, he was witnessed to by some hippies on the street and ended up started uh, checking out Melody Land and Calvary Melody Chapel. Land, yeah. And uh, so he was radically <laughs> saved, uh, a fellow from a Catholic background, and came back to our high school armed with copies of the Hollywood Free Paper for, mm. for, and, um, you know, books, uh, you know, Run, Nicky, Run, Cross the Switchblade, all this stuff that he had picked up, and, you know, all this other Jesus people bric-a-brac he brought with him and uh, he spent basically i don't know how the man wasn't fired but he uh, mm. <laughs> spent many class sessions basically witnessing and preaching in a public high school in a public high nice, school nice. Uh, you know, uh, these days not going to work I, yeah. i'm pretty sure but anyway that was kind of the first inkling yeah. and i'd seen some of the press coverage i was you know my family was southern baptist mm. so all this stuff seemed to kind of be in sync with, with you know a little little more radical than yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the folks in the church were doing but um it was familiar and i was in kind of a you know high school agnostic kind of a place you know smart aleck kid and um the uh eventually it did get through to me and uh i was converted after going to a nikki cruz rally that nikki had cruz. some local jesus people bands at yes, it yes, yes. and um you know so within a couple of years um I was a 21-year-old elder at a oh. coffee house up in the northern suburbs, a house of the risen sun, S-O-N. Nice. Well played. You, you see what we well did there? Well played. <laughs> <laughs> and for about a year or so, a little over a year, we were open and, uh, you know, uh, we were connecting with other places in the Chicago area and you know, southern Wisconsin and mm -hmm. um Getting some of the local musical artists to come through, yeah. and uh, just and, and then you had that whole Jesus people scene sure. mm -hmm. at the time. So, um, so I thought it was a, it was a, something that we were totally involved in, nice. and uh, the evangelism aspect of it, and the idea of the full commitment. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even the uh, allure of the question of communal living sure. reared its head. We backed away from it, um, and in retrospect. Mm. Good two, choice. Th two thumbs choice. up. Yeah, one of the yeah. more famous, right. mm -hmm. still ongoing, is Jesus People USA. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if these word commune to describe it. That word's going to fall out of favor. But this, you yeah. know, communal living right. experience and expression. Um, give us in in just, just a couple of minutes. Um, give us kind of a picture. That's where it started. Mm -hmm. You know, they've seen these memes on the on the interwebs. It says how it started, how it's going. Mm -hmm. But by the time we get to the end <laughs> of the Jesus People mm -hmm. movement. I mean, what's its impact? Is is it hundreds of thousands? Is it millions? Is it tens of millions? Who's impacted by this? It's uh, yeah, hard to chalk up yeah. a number because a lot of I it demand is, a number. Yeah, I okay. demand a number. I think um, there's a lot of tangential impact. Yeah. A lot of kids who come into contact with, um, you know, Jesus people, uh, communes, groups, preachers, um, um, 
the um, uh, various bands and the music. And um, in a lot of ways, if you thought you were a member of the Jesus movement, you were, yeah. you know, and um, I think that's where a lot of the impact happen. But uh, there were numerous, um, you know, in my experience, so just uh, uh, kids in the various high schools and the different communities uh, who were being affected by this, kids from non-evangelical backgrounds often, and maybe I would say even usually, Mm -hmm. and they were um, uh, being... uh, totally uh, reoriented in their life sure. priorities and um i was interested i've always been interested in the way that uh, the jesus people movement seemed to spur a lot of people into ministry mm-hmm. um, i think there was a great wave of people who hit the seminaries and the bible colleges there in the late 70s and early 80s who you know after their experience as they're trying to orient themselves, um, you know, kind of stumble into the realization that they maybe have to get credentialed and uh, get some education to, uh, you know, undertake some of these uh, ministries, whether it be as a pastor or missionary. And uh, uh, so I think that was one of the on the ground visible Mm -hmm. effects. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're talking to Larry Eskridge. Uh, Larry has written the book, God's Forever Family, The Jesus People Movement in America. We're talking to Andrew McDonald, Associate Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Research Institute in the longest title on your card. You must, your card must wrap around the other side. I think I made up that title, so I'm yes. sorry. Yeah, so I apologize for making up that long title. Uh, this is a pre-recorded program, so we're not taking your amazing calls today, but we'll be back to do that uh, next week as well. But you want to uh, continue and listen in. Stay tuned, because uh, when I come back, I'm going to ask Larry, so I came to Christ in the charismatic movement of the Episcopal Church in 1977. Mm-hmm. So what I want to know is uh, all the music that we're playing at this conference, I recognize, was I part of the Jesus People Movement? How do you define that? We're going to continue that conversation uh, and a lot of other fascinating topics in just a few moments. So uh, stay with us here at Ed Stetzer Live in this pre-recorded, really special edition talking about the Jesus People Movement. Politics brings more division than ever, and social media is moving many to be less social and more critical. Those with Christian views are also often being dismissed. Well, what if the rise of secularism, though, is good news for the church? Throughout history, these times of decline traditionally precede powerful spiritual renewal, even revival. You need to read Mark Sayer's book, Reappearing Church, The Hopeful Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. Get a copy of Reappearing Church today at moodypublishers.com. So we're back at Stetzer Live and uh, pre-recorded, so we're not able to take your calls today, but we've got such a fascinating topic, I want to give us lots of focus on the topic. So in um, late 60s, early 70s, there's this movement that seems to spread really, um, you might say from Southern California, you could you actually find different places, but disproportionately impact in Southern California uh, spreads ultimately around the world. So um, Larry Eskridge is one of our guests. He's written God's Forever Family, the Jesus People Movement in America, uh, maybe in some ways uh, the, the most significant book on the topic. Um, so I'm a kid, grew up in New York City, uh, moved down to Florida. There's this, uh, by then you have names like Dennis Bennett and mm-hmm. sort of things spreading through sure. the Episcopal Church. You're familiar with all this in other times of research. Um, so I come to faith in Jesus. Um, you know, the Lord saves me. And yet... I'm too late. It's 1977. So I don't think of myself as coming to Christ in the Jesus People movement. But I start going to these Jesus Orlando festivals, right? Mm-hmm. And all the musicians that are playing right here 
other musicians I was listening to in youth group in 1978. So we just, uh, I just sat with Melody Green. We were here at the, uh, the Balbao University at the Blaze Conference. I sat with Melody Green. She wrote, uh, There is a Redeemer, the right. soundtrack of my discipleship. I, I became a believer and I started listening over and over again to the Keith Green mm. uh, album, No Compromise, right? right. So, uh, so what, how, what's the longevity of this? Am, am I just a you know, long tailor, it comes, it comes out the other side, or where does it fit? Could be. I mean, the influence, you know, the music obviously is a huge sure. uh, uh, avenue of impact uh, that begins to stretch out into various sub-eddies within uh, the church. I think... Um, there's a way where there were, of course, no definitive ending point. And uh, the, the people who are actually in the movement, I don't think, ever uh, thought that it was over until, you know, maybe the early 80s. And they sort of looked around and sort of scratched their head and thought, yeah, I think this Jesus people thing has maybe run its course. Right, you know, yeah, they yeah. probably noticed that things were different sure. in the mid late 70s. Um, but I think the thing that really began to change um, was the fact that the people who were actual participants had moved on with their lives mm -hmm. and were being incorporated into churches all across the country of various stripes, whether it be, you know, maybe a direct Jesus people connection, maybe through a Calvary Chapel or right. a Calvary Chapel outgrowth. Um, churches that were related to their denominational tradition that they'd grown up in, or maybe they'd been involved, gotten involved in the charismatic movement and uh, those sort of local fellowships. As yeah, they that used would to probably be. be called. I mean, we yeah. were inside yeah. Episcopal Church, but that would probably be yeah. where we would be. So I didn't even know the word. I don't know that I even knew the words Jesus People Movement. Mm -hmm. I knew I had Larry Larry Norman on a cassette tape, and I wore yeah. it out. Yeah. Because he, he saw an unidentified flying <laughs> object. You will see him in the air. People got to listen to that music. Okay, so it does seem, and that's a recurring theme. Andrew, when you were doing this oral history, uh, Andrew McDonald's, the uh, associate director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Research Institute, you were doing this oral history. I, I did some of the interviews. I, I don't know. Yep. You did most. You did by far the most. But some of the more fascinating ones for me was I asked people, well, what happened? When did it end? And what mm -hmm. was that like? A couple people teared up. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and they, I, I think there was almost a sense, you know, Leonard Ravenhill and Keith Green. It's like we kind of expected perpetual revival, but revival yeah. doesn't seem to necessarily be perpetual. So as you look at it, when you're having these interviews, give us the time frame of where people talk about these years. You know, go back, go back to the 60s and take me into the 70s, into the early 80s and kind of see what you tell me what you see. Yeah. So I think part of it depends upon who you talk to in terms yeah. of like where they are in, yeah. the, in kind of like you could look at it like tiers of the Jesus movement. There's mm -hmm. this first original kind of generation where you have like John Fisher and the Agave band and, and, and people in Southern California where that's like 67, Ted Wise is like 67, 68. Those are early. When you talk to those people. You, you talk about Ted Wise in yeah. your book. Yeah, mm -hmm. Ted Wise, uh, one of the uh, kind of the first Jesus movement hippie, him and his wife Elizabeth saved in San Francisco as part of John McDonald's church in San Francisco. John McDonald, the straight-laced Baptist preacher, yeah. uh, quite an odd couple, but that odd couple repeats itself again and again in the Jesus movement. Straight-laced preacher, mm -hmm. hippie, hippie yeah. representative. Yeah. That's Think about Chuck Standard. Smith. I'm yeah, a straight-laced preacher. You're I, I thought I was a straight-laced <laughs> okay, preacher. No, no, okay, okay. But, um, but when you talk to these people... Yeah, what you were saying, I interrupt you. Chuck, Chuck Smith, Lonnie Frisbee. Chuck Right. Like the prototype. Yeah, yeah, the prototype. But you have other ones. I mean, then Ted Wise goes off to Peninsula Bible Church and he becomes the hippie to Ray Stedman's yeah, uh, yes, kind right. of stand. Yeah. And, and so, people may, audience, may even know the name Ray Stedman, but they might not, yeah. not know Ted Wise. Uh, this this yeah. repeats itself. There's examples in Houston and Palm Beach, Florida, and uh, Milwaukee. There's mm -hmm. they're, they're all over the place. This kind of paradigm of like straight-laced preacher 
and hippie representative. But when you talk to this first generation, they tend to see the movement ending with Expo 72. They see Expo 72 as kind of mm. like we, we've reached our our, our 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 like the the ultimate level of fame and popularity, and now the movement has gone has sold out to the man. It's now gone <laughs> full, and they and they see that Expo 72 is kind of the last hurrah of the Jesus. We, we're movement. gonna have to unpack a little bit of Expo 72, yeah. is just Yeah, I want to jump in there and just to say I think there is a sense that um, for some of the Jesus people that you know Expo 72 at one level is this big flash event 85,000 right. people yeah. attend a rally put on by Campus Crusade right. for Christ Billy Graham Not, and Johnny Billy Graham is involved Johnny yeah. Cash John, crew put it on John, John, Johnny Cash, Cash is yeah. there the big concert with 150 to 200,000 yeah, people yeah, yeah. somewhere in there yeah. uh, but I think there's also a sense for a lot of the uh, people coming out of the counterculture that um, the movement was captured mm-hmm. at Expo 72, you know, by the uh, organizations. Yeah, and I would say that and, when you hear it from, you know, of course, I work at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Yeah. When you hear from the, at that side, it's Billy Graham helped mainstream. Right. In other words, not captured, but a counterculture <laughs> would see mainstreaming as, exactly. as, being, as being captured. Uh-huh. But, you know, I think one of the reasons that, uh, that the, I'm a believer today is because of that mainstreaming, mm-hmm. particularly the charismatic stuff that would later the Episcopal Church and catch, not a direct connection between the two. Right. So Expo 72, just to remind everyone, is, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, Expo 72 is this huge gathering uh, put on by Campus Crusade. A lot of people think it's a Billy Graham crusade, but it's not, but he's there. Right. But his presence is substantively important yes. to yep. say, this is legitimate. Because mm-hmm. these were a lot of, I mean, this was, there were a lot of crazy things going on. Yeah. And people didn't know how to respond. Well, well, he had he had uh, participated in the Rose Bowl parade the year before, where he had famously given the one-way symbol. But asked afterwards, I believe, Larry, so guy, you what's, get the back one, me guy, what's the one-way symbol? The one-way symbol, finger pointed up. Yeah, uh, and up. like, and if you, I mean, if you're not of a certain age, yeah. you don't appreciate that it was like everywhere. It was printed yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Just yeah. this man, this was. It's like the fish symbol of the generation. And so right. Graham gives the one-way symbol in the 70, 71 Rose Bowl parade. Mm-hmm. But I believe afterwards he wrote in his biography that he didn't know what he was what it really meant yeah. at the time he saw a bunch of people giving him the one-way symbol and saying jesus and he was like great there's a reporter actually yeah. who's who speculated that uh just folks on down the line as he started doing this where the reaction was that he must be given the we're number one sign which was actually a recent sort sure. of sure. Uh, you know, yeah, absorbed yeah. <laughs> absorbed into the popular culture or that you know because he's richard nixon's friend and yeah. as uh, he's there as the grand marshal of the rose parade that it's kind of a celebrate america event so that he's you know one, yeah. america's number one you know mm-hmm. and so they returned you know they're very polite they returned <laughs> the symbol to him but you know you also have the jesus people there who you know they they got a loaded meaning with uh, yeah, that symbol yeah. you know? so as uh, so expo yeah. 72 becomes the first conscious decision from mm-hmm. graham to really participate in this kind of hippie counterculture jesus movement but i mean when you're when you're looking at timelines i mean love song doesn't really have a lot of their albums love until coming yep. right. after expo 72 and right. keith green isn't saved until 75 Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the people who we associate with the movement aren't even around by the time Expo 72 happens. And so when, you, when you're kind of like trying to trace it, yeah. um, I mean, John Wimber, people often associate right. him with a very tail end. John Wimber associated with the Vineyard Movement, mm-hmm. uh, one of the earliest pastors, not the founding pastor, but one of the earliest pastors. Ken Gullickson, who is uh, uh, Chuck Smith's kind of right-hand man with uh, Costa Mesa, founds the Vineyard coming out of the Jesus Movement. And John Wimber kind of takes that in a big direction. Yeah, so let's let's talk a bit. We got we got about two minutes left in this segment, and because um, that that's for me, you know. So I, again, I come to Christ seventy seven. Um, I think seventy eight. No compromise comes out. So that's the thing. I don't know 
Is that Jesus people movement or not? So, you know, I, when we had the big concert here, again, we're at the Blaze Conference at Biola University. Dr. Oscar Marlowe put the conference on, and um, we're having a we're, we're still here in the midst of the conference recording this program for you. Um, I don't recognize the songs from Love Song. Uh, I don't recognize, you know, just, just historically, I just don't recognize them. Um, but clearly, you know, Second Chapter Backs was, you know, I think I think before we came on the air, I shared this was a song that my sister sang, right. uh, who died uh, a few years after. It's one of the few recordings we have is the song Mansion Builder. And my guess is a whole lot of people would recognize the song Mansion Builder, Easter song for sure, you know. Um, so so certainly the the umbrella or the ongoing influence of that uh, becomes mainstreamed, and 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 I'm particularly interested. You mentioned Calvary Chapel, so I was speaking at a meeting of um, I don't know. It's kind of this private meeting of the four hundred. It's called the four hundred most four hundred most influential churches in America, and I got up and said, "Your church is probably they're all you know they're all younger now." I said, "You probably don't even know it, but your church is led like a saddleback, and worships like a Calvary Chapel, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the impact of the music is stunning." So um, talk to us a little bit. We've got about 30 seconds. Talk us a little bit about the music, then we're going to come back and unpack it a little more. Talk us about the music and why that mattered. Well, the music was, uh, it was uh, for a lot of the people in the Jesus People Movement, it's a lifeline, um, you know, to their uh, peer culture with the kids. And um, uh, for them, it was paramount importance. It was a real connection that sort of opened doors. Yeah. into the church. Good. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment and continue our conversation. We're talking to Larry Eskridge about his book, God's Forever Family, and Andrew McDonald, who has led this uh, oral history of the Jesus People Movement. You can go to the show notes and find the link or just go directly to jesuspeoplemovement.com. We're going to continue our conversation and talk about some of the implications, what we learned from the past and what we might learn today as well. So stay with us. Hey, we're back. Ed Stetzer Live. Happy New Year. This is airing on New Year's Day. And so Happy New Year's to you. Hopefully you're getting some time to rest. Let's be particularly thankful for our first responders and others who, while they don't get a time to rest in and around these holidays, we appreciate you and uh, your sacrifice. And if you are taking time to relax, maybe you're listening for the first time to edstetzerlive.com. Maybe you're out in your garage working on Saturday morning, for all I know. Let me encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. If you find this kind of conversation helpful, you can go to edstetzerlive.com, Moody Radio app, links there. But we're with our families on New Year's Day, as you can probably imagine. So this is a pre-recorded episode, but I think it's one you'll find helpful and productive because you have two key thinkers who have written a book, in Larry Eskridge's case, a book on the Jesus People Movement, and Aaron McDonald, who did a history on the Jesus People Movement, what we call an oral history. We actually interviewed uh, significant figures from the Jesus People Movement, which is kind of movement in the 60s and the 70s. Go to JesusPeopleMovement.com, over 60 interviews. And what we wanted to capture some of the history and the, the stories of what God did through the Jesus People Movement. Let's listen to this conversation with Andrew and Larry. We're back with Larry Eskridge and Andrew McDonald having what really is a fascinating conversation. I, I'm really thankful that the uh, what, all right, Andrew, help me. The Center for the, Center for the Ministry and Work of the Holy Spirit today. The Center for the Ministry and Work of the Holy Spirit today. You'll get it. You'll get it. By the end of this, you'll get it. It's the longest title center. But again, we're making fun of your title. So, yeah, so but we are here on the campus of Biola University and super thankful for that. You know, we're Moody Radio is uh, part of Moody Bible Institute, um, partners, friends with things like Biola or Wheaton. I serve at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. We're partners 
uh, in the research, right? <laughs> and so, so we've had, I mean, it's been a fascinating mm -hmm. set of, I mean, I, I sat down with some people that were huge influences in my life. I tried not to go, when I was sitting down with, uh, with Nelly from Second Chapter Vax, I did that interview, right? I did yeah. that interview because I hung out with them in other places, but I did that interview. I was like, this is the soundtrack of my teenage years. And mm -hmm. I, I said, I was talking to Barry Corey, the president of Biola last night, that you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, came to Christ, and um, No Compromise was the album of my teenage years. And I didn't have, I actually said to Barry last night, and the melody, Green, I mean, I, I, I got, I'm a, I'm a sinner, still sin, but I didn't have that period of like backsliding or questioning at 16 or 17 or 18 because Keith Green was in my head. Mm -hmm. Because I was all in. I mean, that music shaped my spiritual journey. So I want to come back to that, Larry, because I think one of the often movements, revivals, awakenings, do have accompanying music. Mm -hmm. But it's almost in this case, you can't say which came first, the chicken or the egg. So mm -hmm. so you started to give us how important it was. Uh, give us a little more kind of how that spread, what that looked like. Because for a lot of people, they don't realize that Christian rock or whatever it may be, uh, didn't exist in the form it did until right. some of these things around there. Give us some names. Give us some history. Okay. Well, uh, early on, you know, the Calvary Chapel orbit is very important, particularly in Southern California. And um, they promote you get little groups coming out of Calvary Chapel, like the Children of the Day, Mustard Seed Faith, mm. um, and uh, Love Song, which yeah. is the most important because they were actually people who had professional chops, yeah. you know, experience, and uh, sort of had a sound that could uh, uh, move beyond sort of the uh, rough, um, you know, stuff you would hear in a, in a prayer meeting or whatever. Um, and uh, they had the wherewithal to begin to know something about uh, recording and distributing their music. Um, and, um, you know, but even in every little aspect of the Jesus, every little node, uh, if you had any sort of coffee house or ministry that was important, there was usually a musician or a band that sort of helped solidify the appeal and the reputation of those organizations. And you begin to get this network of Jesus people uh, institutions. It's almost, um, I mean, it's not a great analogy, but almost like the vaudeville circuit mm -hmm. uh, and sort of informal networks that grow up where they begin uh, playing around in different uh, uh, regions and areas and begin to make the music known. And um, uh, eventually, you begin to get some of the people in, I guess you would call it, again, the evangelical um, networks, the established right, networks yeah. uh, who have um, access with recording companies, right. particularly Word Records yep. out of Waco, Texas. Waco, and, Texas. Uh, yeah. and they begin to become the first uh, real record label other than Chuck Smith's uh, the Maranatha, Maranatha yeah. label. And uh, they begin to take a chance and say, we should try to record uh, some of these musicians. The first one who really sort of uh, connects with them is a guy named Randy Matthews, yeah, yeah. who is out of Cincinnati. And he was from a Church of Christ background, um, and uh, which is always somewhat There's ironic. There's a certain irony yeah, yeah, that the yeah, yeah. band, the yeah, musicians. Yeah. Musician uh, who, you know, officially cannot use musical instruments right, in their right. services, but uh, on outside of church, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, he was from Cincinnati, and he talked to... Um, uh, the folks down at uh, Waco and to Billy Ray Hearn in particular, who was working for Word and said, you know, 
your music's not connecting right. <laughs> with uh, the kids and the uh, kids, <laughs> the kids. <laughs> and um, so th- they took a chance and let him record an album. And eventually, they come out with Murr Records. Murr Records, sure, where sure. a lot of these guys yeah. first appear, and um, uh, you know people like Honey Tree. Yep, yep. And um, we we learned yeah, Honey Tree last Honey night. Honey Tree last who, night, <laughs> who tuned her guitar on stage? Yes. <laughs> which in 1978, I remember her tuning her guitar on mm-hmm. stage. Like every time I see her, she's tuned her guitar. So yep. it was like. Flashback, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we saw her in 1975 at the Salt Festival in Howell, Michigan. Nice. <laughs> About 3,500, 4,000 people wow. were there. We saw wow. bands like the Liberation Suite. Yeah. Um, you know, Randy Matthews was there. Honey Tree. Uh, it was a. Uh, it was a flashback. Definitely. That was yeah. fascinating, was it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, did you stay for the whole concert last night? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just fun to watch. Yeah, and, it uh, was. It was also fun too. Is that I was standing on the side of the stage, and they'd come down just out of breath and say, I don't know how I did this. <laughs> this is 50 years ago. I mean, yeah. some of these musicians oh, yeah. are 70-plus yeah. years of age. Yeah. Uh, Nelly talked about um, – I, I hang out with Steve and Nelly in Colorado Springs. We have a little group that mm-hmm. we hang out with. Um, little, I don't even know, a little fellowship group. And uh, they, she had to, six months to get her voice back in shape for this. Because, you know, oh, St. Jack Backs, those vocals. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those vocals yeah. are crazy. Yeah. All right, so um, – Talk to us about what you heard, because you talk to musicians. This mm-hmm. is talking to Andrew here. Uh, you talk to musicians, but you also talk to people who are not musicians. Uh, but they all kept coming back to the music yeah. in ways that I don't hear as much today. Maybe some in the Hillsong conversation yeah. uh, that's very music-driven. Mm. But I don't even think that level. I well, think, I think it was unique. Well, I think there's a couple points about the music that are just fascinating and unique to kind of the jeez music specifically. I think the first one is how much the music, I mean, the music in the 1960s and the 1970s, even outside of the church, That's is just point. so iconic. It's so right. deeply, with, I mean, you think about yes. like the Beatles and I mean, Woodstock, and it's just so attached to that period of time that it's so, so important. But I, I, but I think one of the things that just happens again and again as I'm talking to people who are not the major musicians, not the love songs in the second chapter of Acts, but just regular people, part of the movement, was that how much that they listened to people who were, they listened to albums, they listened to, they went to uh, Expo 72, and they would come back and they would try and do it themselves. Yeah. Uh, they would pick up, I can do that, I can pick up a guitar, I can write my own songs. And I think mm-hmm. part of that was, when we think about, when you think about Christian worship music today, you think about Hillsong, you think about the worship music, but that's not the Jesus music. The Jesus music isn't worship music. Right. It isn't meant to that's be sung point. on Sunday right. morning. Yeah. It is a, it is an evangelistic or story. It yeah, is somebody telling their story. at coffee houses. Mm-hmm. and called people to Christ. And yeah. that's different. Yeah. And so everybody has their own story. You're not a worship yeah. leader. Not everybody is a worship leader. Not everybody's going to go to their, their church isn't going to let you go and, and lead worship on Sunday morning. I can assure but, you they will not. <laughs> <laughs> but you can get some friends together and tell your story yeah. about what mm-hmm. God has done in your life. And so a lot of people, like I heard from so many that they went to Expo 72, they heard Love Song or they heard somebody, uh, some Jesus music band there. Then they went home and they started their own band in their wow. garage. Yeah. And it was they wrote their own songs and they were terrible. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you're, you're and I's close friend, uh, Craig Ott, this is uh, yeah. one of his stories that Crazy he heard, story. he heard, uh, uh, love song at Costa Mesa yeah. and went and started his own Christian music band. And Craig Ott's now a professor at Trinity right. Evangelical yeah. Divinity School. One yeah. of the most respected, uh, missiologists in America today. There's a connection to missiology, oh, I yeah. think, and this, yeah. we'll, we'll just so, get there. Long haired hippie in his day. Larry Norman, uh, just everything I got, I had Larry Norman stuff all the time. And, uh, I actually had this conversation with Larry Norman. I think I shared with you the email exchange that we had. It was fascinating. 
But I still remember. I mean, he just told the story. I've been knocked down, kicked around. <laughs> Some people scandalized my name. But here I am. You know it? Talking about Jesus just the same. Larry knows it. Ooh. I've been rebuked for the things I said. And it's just fascinating. He tells the whole story. So you're saying this isn't an email he's singing to you? No, no. I so we, so we had a fascinating, I was writing a book with Elmer Towns. It was, and it was a chapter on music. And I called him up and because he was, I mean, just scandalously, he had long hair and jeans and playing yeah, this rock yeah. and roll music. He was out there. And what was fascinating was in the email, and it, I publicized, I put it out there, is how critical he was of the next generation of musicians. They're just jumping around on the stage and looking crazy, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, that's what they said about you. Mm. <laughs> and it was just fascinating to see. I mean, in a sense, we all eventually get to that place. Um I want to talk about in, in the next segment, particularly some about evangelism. But Larry, I want to give us 30 seconds on evangelism before we go to our final second. That seemed to be so central. Evangelism was sort of the lifeblood of everything <laughs> that folks did. Uh, and it was a time in the culture, again, where um, in some ways maybe evangelism was easy yeah. because we have the situation where you the, the times are crazy yeah. and people were willing to listen and that's one of the interesting differences perhaps with our situation these days mm-hmm. um they're maybe not quite as open the and, times and are still crazy they are cr- crazy so, so, but they're, they're not as open. They, yeah. they've heard the message yeah. you know because of evangelicals being so good at media yeah. and uh, presenting their message we're going to continue our conversation with larry eskridge and andrew mcdonald here on ed stetzer live in just a moment Hey, again, Happy New Year. One final segment with my friends, Larry Eskridge and Andrew McDonald. We're talking about the Jesus People Movement. Uh, we're taking a day off as it's New Year's Day. Maybe you are as well. And uh, But if not, if you're listening in the garage, uh, doing some work on Saturday morning, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so we can listen to this program all the time at the Moody Radio app as well, edstetzerlive.com. Let's jump back into the conversation. Hey, we're back in our final segment, Ed Stetzer Live here. I'm having too much fun. You know, sometimes I'm talking to people about things that I, uh, I, I, you know, I think are interesting, but this is something that like changed my life. Mm. Again, I'm too young to be in the Jesus people movement, but certainly impacted by the tail end of it. Larry Eskridge is, was a part of the Jesus people movement. His book is a well-known book is God's forever family, the Jesus people movement in America. Also with Andrew McDonald, who works at the Wheaton college, uh, research, Billy, Billy Graham center research Institute. And he did this oral research project. You can find it. Jesus people movement.com. Larry, before the break, we started talking about evangelism. And one of the things that I just have seen is so central, and it's not connected to music. People don't even see music connected to evangelism today, but evangelism was so central to this movement. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Evangelism was the lifeblood of the Jesus People movement. I mean, you begin thinking about, uh, there was, it was seen as really a part of what you wear and you know what you did yeah. as a Christian amongst these new Jesus people, and uh, in a way that uh, uh, probably has not been quite. <laughs> I wouldn't think. Yeah, I don't see uh, since yeah. then. But you know, the idea of street witnessing, mm-hmm. going door to door, holding impromptu meetings on the streets, um, in, inviting people to a coffee house to just chat or to listen to a singer. Um, 
we had the the Jesus papers that were produced that were handed out, you know, yeah. uh, on the streets and given to friends, left in the laundromats, Love you that. know, that yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. thing. Um, and uh, you know, using uh, also stuff like. Uh, uh, Tracks from the uh, American Bible Society mm-hmm, sure. and Chick Tracks. Chick Tracks, oh the, my, I remember yeah, Chick Tracks, yes. Which, uh, you know, as we look back on those particular instruments, uh, maybe not the They the were greatest. sometimes a little more aggressive. A little, yeah, a little we aggressive. Were, we but we again, might be a little more subtle. But again, today. in the 60s and 70s, <laughs> yeah, that, that stuff hit. I mean, people it, were in your face. it fit right in with the underground comics yeah. and the uh, underground newspapers. It was part of that whole ethos, yeah. and, and it worked. Yeah. And, I know um, people who are believers today because of Chick, track chick left, Tracks. Left, to be perfectly blunt, left on a urinal. Yeah. And so I know a guy who came to Christ looking at a Chick Track that he picked up off a urinal. People finding them in telephone booths. Remember, there's a blast. Yeah, what is that? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Okay, so yep. um, so one of the things, too, in these oral histories that I did was the coffee house. Coffee house, I mean, we think of a place where you get coffee, but that's not what it was. No, no. Uh, the music would then come, and it would be followed by, uh, well, gospel. Mm-hmm. So tell us about what that what those coffee houses look like, and where do the yeah. names fit in there? Yeah, the coffee houses. I mean, it was almost like there was, uh, uh, you know, a, a supply house somewhere that fitted all these coffee houses. <laughs> you know, carpet squares on the stage. Right. They'd come up with these old uh, wire cable uh, spools and used as tables, and very dark usually in the place. Right. Little maybe a, a candle sitting on the table, um, but. Um, they were really sort of a, a networking place mm-hmm. for these Jesus people groups just to hang out and to chat. And it also served as a venue for evangelism. And uh, one of the interesting uh, phrases I came across was that somebody uh, I interviewed at one point talked about how that their local coffee house, that was the face of the Jesus people movement for them. Interesting. You know, again, yeah. this sort of local idea, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, Tip O'Neill is... Uh, credited with the statement, you know, all politics are local. Well, in many ways, all Jesus people were local. Interesting. And um, uh, really, it happened in in these coffee houses that uh, kind of the lifeblood. And at some point, the uh, communal house was sort of what you would say as this is the archetype of how Jesus people exist. Right. But in very early, it shifted to the coffee house. And that particularly when uh, the Jesus people began to uh, sort of evolve from being countercultural street people, maybe homeless kids, in, you know, coming out of the drug culture, and beginning to impact kids more in church youth groups, yep. high school-age yeah. kids. Well, they didn't need a house necessarily, mm-hmm. yep. but they needed a place to gather. And so the coffee house really took that over, and that was a, became the central uh, sort of organizing unit yeah. in the whole movement. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was uh, pretty much gone by the time I come to, yeah. come to faith, at least where I was. But the, the, it had kind of – it had definitely kind of become part of the youth group experience, some right. of that. So we had coffee house nights right. at church, <laughs> uh-huh. which is very different than, you know, they find a little dusty place to, yeah. to have that. But, again, it's that mainstreaming. That in some ways was you know, had negative impact. Um, talk us more about a- Andrew McDonald. Um, you 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 and I were served together at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. We're driven by reaching people by evangelism. That's that's mm-hmm. why we exist. What lessons did you take away in your interviews? Of what was happening regarding evangelism? And if you don't mind, tell me those lessons, and then talk about how some of them might apply to today. Yeah, I think one of the 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 big 
pieces for evangelism was that remember that with all that we talked about like the cultural chaos that was going on behind this i think that a lot of for a lot of people especially that initial first generation of hippies they were finding an answer to a deep kind of existential question about meaning and purpose they're finding it in christ they're finding it in the church and so now all of a sudden they knew the lostness think about all the lyrics of the kind of later beatles Mm -hmm. and and a lot of the late 1960s music uh secular music is incredibly uh searching for for Longing for longing for meaning and purpose, mm-hmm. and so a lot of these early Jesus people, hippies, they were finding the answer to that. They, and so they had to they had to then go out and they knew other people. They knew people who were lost in drug culture mm-hmm. and sex culture and and kind of existentially looking for things in Eastern mysticism and such. And so they went out to go find those people who they knew were lost, knew were hurting, and tell them about kind of the joy that they had found. And so the the greatest kind of uh, evangelists in the movement were these hippies that had gone the deepest. I mean, you think about. Ken, um, uh, Ted Wise again, going to back yeah. to Ted Wise, who had been so far off in kind of the drug culture, becomes you—you you literally could not stop him from evangelizing. He gets fired from one of his jobs yeah. because he's sharing the gospel so much that John McDonald, his pastor, has to come to him and tell him to kind of tone it down a little bit here. <laughs> I wish I had to tell people today to tone yeah, it down. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's it, you, you see it in the music as well, that they just have this deep abiding, I can't—I was so lost— I was so looking for meaning that now I have to find a way of, of, of sharing this with people who are similarly lost today. And so I think when we're thinking about this as church, uh, people in the churches and pastors as such, I think one of the greatest things is to remember what are the questions today? What are the questions in our culture that are providing a similar search for meaning? They're not the same as they were in the 1960s. We're not drop, There's not mm. as much LSD no, walking LSD around. Is a little less common in my neighborhood. But, yeah. but there are new questions. There's questions around social media and identity. There's questions around gender. There's questions around all sorts of different things that are animating a similar existential quest for who am I? What is meaning? And so when we think about evangelism today, we have to think about what are the ways that people can, we can answer those, show how the cross, how Christ answers those questions mm, and address that need. Larry, what else would you say lessons for today? Well, I think one of the interesting things uh, in fitting it in with our time period is the idea that uh, was perhaps helpful at the time was that people who got involved in the counterculture and the drug culture realized that there was a need for change yeah. in their lives yeah. and their need for you know this search for a deeper meaning. And um, you know, in some ways, you could basically say that you know, these folks realized you had to have a change of mind to be converted, yeah, you know, yeah. and to get into the counterculture. Many of the people found out that that didn't work for them. Right. But when they came into the Jesus movement, it was like, okay, here is something worth converting to, wow. what they had found. And uh, they were eager to go out and share that message. So that was uh, uh, kind of a nice uh, flow yeah. effect, I think. And, um, you know, for us, I think it's important to try to find what points can we hit that um, help us relate to our peers at this moment in our contemporary time um, to answer questions that they think might need to be asked. The pressing issues of the day. Our guests have been Larry Eskridge, who wrote God's Forever Family, Andrew McDonald, who helped launch JesusPeopleMovement.com. Uh, thank to both of you for joining me on the program. Thanks, man. And thanks for those of you who are listening. As you mentioned, or as I mentioned earlier, it's a pre-recorded program. But let me thank my team: Courtney Young, uh, our engineer; Karen Hendren, producer. Uh, no one on the phones today, so I won't thank that person. We usually have some great phone team uh, members as well. Thanks for listening. Ed Stetzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, which is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.